So good morning. Or it's in the spirit now where it can say Merry Christmas. Yes? Hey, do you know? Do you know where the greeting Merry Christmas came from? Have you ever wondered? Anybody ever researched that? I did this week because it crossed my mind. I thought, where does that thing come from? Why Merry Christmas? Well, Christmas is short for Christ's Mass. Did you know that? I didn't know that. It just never occurred to me. I just knew the word Christmas, but it's short for Christ's Mass. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, okay, that's really a cool thing. That's really a cool thing to call the day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. How appropriate, how appropriate is it to call the celebration of the day that he was born into becoming flesh and blood a mass, Christ's mass, where his flesh and blood is symbolized in the bread of wine. Pretty cool? Yeah, I thought so too, George. But what about, what about the Mary part? You know, and it's special and right, unique association with Christmas, right? Unique. I mean, you don't go around, you get a strange look on your face if you went around a couple of weeks ago, I guess now, and said, Merry Thanksgiving, you know, or Merry New Year. It's, it's just Merry Christmas, isn't it? So what about that? Well, my research showed that Merry is actually a shortened form of a very old English word, mourige, I think is how it's pronounced, but it means pleasant. So, Pleasant Christmas, or the greeting of, I hope you have a pleasant Christ's Mass, is the literal meaning of Merry Christmas. The very first recorded use of Merry Christmas, the very first record that we have of it written down, is found in a very old letter written by a British admiral in 1699. But the phrase, Merry Christmas, really didn't become popular more and more on everyone's lips this time of year until 1843 when the very first commercial Christmas card used the phrase, Merry Christmas. And then, on top of that, what really pushed it in that same year, 1843, is a certain famous English author wrote a very famous book, and almost everyone credits this author and his book with taking Merry Christmas off that Christmas card and into the popular, into the mouths of the popular people as a greeting. See if you can guess the author and book. Some of you I know already have, but let me give a hint. Here's a quote from that book. Every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a snake of holly in his heart. Bah, humbug. Yeah, you know now, right? Yeah, Dickens, a, a, a Christmas carol. He's credited with popularizing Merry Christmas. Isn't that fascinating? Oh, the things you learn in church on a Sunday morning, yes? Astounding. So... So indeed, Merry Christmas, everyone, and God bless us, everyone. And Christmas, you know, is indeed merry because of the promise of Christmas. And the promise of Christmas you see on the screen is the title that we've given to this series of sermons this Christmas time that we started talking about last week. And last week we saw that part of the promise of Christmas at least, or, or one additional way to look at the promise of Christmas, is in the promise, the words that the angel Gabriel made to the young girl Mary when telling her that she would be pregnant while still a virgin. Gabriel tells her 
Mary, nothing is impossible with God. And so when we come around the manger each Christmas, my prayer is that as we all come around that manger again and we look at and we think about and we contemplate and we see and we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we should be reminded, even as we look at that baby, that nothing, absolutely nothing is impossible with God. Because I'm telling you, or anyone can tell you, God's telling us if that baby If that birth is possible with God, well, then anything is. And if we doubt, when we doubt, boy, just take a look again. Take a long, lingering look at that baby lying in that manger, that impossible baby. But there he is. And remember as you look and celebrate, remember and believe and trust again in the promise of Christmas, the promise that nothing is impossible with God, not even a virgin birth, not even God coming to the world as flesh and blood to atone for the sins of the world, not even that is impossible with God. And that, my friends, is a reason to make merry at Christmas. Can I have an amen? Amen. Amen. And so for the next three weeks, I need us all, I'll ask you, invite you all to stay close to that promise of Christmas, to stay close and be reminded, as Mary was reminded, that nothing is impossible with God. And I want us to stay close to that throughout this series because we're going to look at some impossible things. Impossible things without God, but possible with God. So, every once in a while, during the message, I'm gonna ask you to repeat or respond by saying, all together, nothing is impossible with God. Help remind us of this important promise of Christmas, okay? And that's a good idea, right, for you to do that? Because, see, it's very clever of me. I can make you pay close attention to the message because when is he going to ask us to say it, right? Okay, so we're going to practice. Okay, we're going to practice. Here's, and I'll cue you when to say it. We had some people in the 9, nine o'clock service jump the gun, so don't jump the gun. Okay, so I'll make it plain when you're supposed to say something. Okay, are you ready? George, are you ready? Ready. George is always ready. Okay, let's practice. The virgin birth, that's impossible. But you know what, Mary? It is possible. It is possible because... Nice. Off to a good start. Interactive sermons. What will the world think of next? Yes? Good job. So the next two weeks, I want to talk about... The next two weeks, I want to talk about the Incarnation. The incarnation of Christ, that impossible thing. The incarnation of Christ where God became a human being. God became a human being, impossible. Oh, but Mary, it is possible because the incarnation of Christ is foundational. It is a foundational truth in Christianity. I'd imagine If I passed the mic or if I took the time to ask any of you here today who are Christians and believers, hey, is Jesus fully God and fully human? Every one of you, I bet, would say, yes. You've heard this before somewhere. You've learned that. You know that about the Christian faith. It's that central. Jesus is fully God and fully human. We know enough as believers to affirm that truth. But have we spent enough time, have we ever spent the time 
to wrestle with the full ramifications of that truth that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Are we willing to take that truth, even as opposite as it seems, as impossible as it seems, are we willing to take that truth as deeply as it goes? What does it really mean for us today that Jesus is fully God and fully human? What difference does it make? Is it really that important? So we're going to explore that a bit these next two weeks. And the vehicle, the method I'm going to use to explore it is this. There are two titles of Jesus in particular that emphasize his full divinity and his full humanity. One title emphasizes his divinity and the other his humanity. And those two titles are Son of God and Son of Man. And here's something a bit surprising. I know it surprised me when I first studied these titles a bit closer. The title that emphasizes his divinity is Son of Man. And the title that tries to emphasize contextually his humanity is more often than not Son of God. And there are exceptions. It's not that clean a distinction. But the emphasis of each pushes in the direction of or points to a different direction. Son of God leans toward Jesus' humanity. And Son of Man leans toward Jesus' divinity. So this week... I want to take first what I feel for Christians may be the harder of the two to, uh, to fully appreciate. And that's the title, Son of God, because it emphasizes Jesus' humanity. In both my own experience and as I've observed other believers personally and throughout history through studying them, that seems to be, there seems to be a more, it seems to be a more difficult emphasis for believers to fully realize what it means that Jesus is fully human. And so this week, Son of God, and it pointing toward Jesus' humanity. And next week, man, that powerful title from Daniel. I'll give you a preview of Son of Man, and it's pointing toward divinity. So I hope, please, make your plans to come next week too. You really need both of these message to, messages together because it's incomplete. One is incomplete without the other. And in both cases, Son of God, Son of Man, will ask the so what question. What does this fully God and fully human thing really mean for me today? What difference does it make? So first, Jesus is called Son of God. Now, perhaps the easiest way to see where this title points to his humanity is to understand, to remember, that in addition to naming Jesus Son of God, the Bible calls all followers of Jesus sons and daughters and children of God. In fact, God as the father of his people has deep roots in the Old Testament. As you know, it's, it's God's designation of himself as, as who he is. It's the title he gives himself as, as who is he in relationship to us. He says, I'm your father. 
The very first mention of God as a father in the Bible occurs in Deuteronomy 131, which says, The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for Egypt before your very eyes and in the desert. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. And by the end of Deuteronomy, God, the father of his people, his children, is even more direct, as direct as it gets. Is this the way you repay the Lord, Moses writes, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? We are all, biblically, sons and daughters and children of God. In the New Testament, Paul in Galatians says it plainly enough. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And many other New Testament references to believers as children of God, perhaps none more emphatic than what we find in 1 John, where the apostle writes, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Even has the relatively rare biblical exclamation point in that verse. In fact, two of them. What great love that we're called children of God. We are children of God. Now, it is indeed true that Jesus and Jesus alone in the Bible gets the article the in front of Son of God. He is the only, the Son of God. That is, he is the heir, the representative of God, the Son, the brother, the one with all God's authority, the brother of us all. And it's also true that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. That is, the only one who came about through this miraculous virgin birth. But simply being Son of God doesn't necessarily make Jesus divine. He is divine, but the title or designation Son of God doesn't necessarily intend to point us there biblically, since we are all, all of us biblically, those of us in Christ and who follow God, all of us biblically, sons and daughters and children of God. And you know, as well as I do, that even though we're also called sons and daughters and children of God, well, we're certainly not God. And so, for example, when the Roman centurion at Jesus' death proclaims, surely this man was the Son of God, in first century context and in biblical context of that title, the emphasis, at least, may well be on the word the, Surely this man was the Son of God. Surely this man was the best man of all, emphasizing that among all men, this was the most amazing man, rather than emphasizing Jesus' divinity, which frankly, what would a Roman soldier know about that, and what God would a Roman be talking to or talking about anyway? 
Surely this man was the Son of God as opposed to any other son or daughter of God, any other person being the Son of God. And so the Bible calls Jesus Son of God and calls us children of God. That designation for Jesus then, if it leans toward his humanity as I'm suggesting to you, that designation of Jesus as Son of God is meant to bring us closer to who Jesus is rather than what sometimes happens when we think of Jesus as God, kind of push him away as, well, he's divine, he's other, he's so different, ooh, son of God. Uh-uh, the direction of that title biblically is, whoa, he's a son of God even as I'm like a and called a son of God. He's one of us. He's human. He's family. He's our brother. He together, he's, he, he's together with us in this thing called life. We're together with Jesus as fellow sons and daughters and children of God the Father. Jesus is indeed fully human, even as we are fully human. He's that human all the way, fully human. And right about now, we may start to feel a little nervous. And it's okay. You can take a deep breath. Because right now, we may be tempted to even subconsciously stop short of considering or believing that Jesus is fully human. Stop short of the full and complete effect of that fact. Because we know correctly, it's in the back of our minds at least, we start to think, but wait a minute. Jesus is fully God too, and we want to leave room for that. But as soon as you leave room for it, both fullies become less than fully because they're making room for the other, right? And yes, let me say it again. Jesus is fully God. You got to give me next week too. But for this morning, the emphasis I want to press with you is he is also fully human. And we say, well, wait a minute. How can someone or how can he be fully both? That's impossible. But wait a minute, Mary. It is possible because... Amen. Now the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul helps us understand how Jesus can be fully God and fully human all at, all at once. Paul helps us understand this in the very famous passage of Philippians where Paul says of Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The NASB translation, a more literal Greek translation, says this, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing. He emptied himself, in more literal Greek, by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So what is Paul saying here? Paul says Jesus decided not to take advantage of being fully God, but rather chose to empty himself, chose to make himself nothing in comparison, chose to be fully human, which is indeed is nothing in comparison to being God. Okay, here's a visual aid of what I think Paul is saying here. If this, 
if this is all the power and divine right and privileges of being very God that Jesus could have used, since he is very God, if this is what it is, he chose to take this and he chose to put it over here or put it over there for the time being while he was on earth. He made that choice when he agreed to become a human being. The choice, you know what, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to use my divinity while here on earth. He emptied himself of it. He set its use aside. And hear me. He remained fully God. That's who he is. So that over there isn't the fully God part. He's still fully God. But what's over there is his right to use it. He set aside. Jesus said, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to live my incarnate life as one who is fully human, and I'm not going to take advantage of the fact that I am also fully God, Paul says. I'm going to do this life thing, Jesus says, as a man, so help me God. I'm going to do this out of the intimacy, out of the faith, out of the closeness to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, out of the obedience I'm going to use their power, but I'm not going to take advantage of using my own power as God, even though I could. And you say, well, just a minute, Pastor, what about the miracles? Well, let me try and, and do the rabbinic thing and answer that question with a question. Do miracles make someone God? Do miracles make the miracle worker divine? Well, the answer is obviously no, because there are many people in the Bible who did miracles, a long, long list of them, and they were not God. Doing miracles doesn't mean you're God. Doing something supernatural, doing miracles means that some sort of, or someone with divine or supernatural power is working with you and through you, but they don't necessarily mean that you're God, do they? Now, Jesus' miracles certainly pointed to him as Messiah, the one coming with signs and wonders and healing in his wings, points to him as Messiah. The Bible says signs and wonders evidence he is Messiah, but nowhere does it say miracles are a sign in and of themselves that he is necessarily God. He is God, but the miracles themselves don't prove it. The miraculous serves to get people's attention, to go and check it out. In Jesus' case, go and check him out. Did you hear? He raised someone from the dead. Well, maybe we ought to go check him out and consider very seriously what he has to say and see what he's like and experience him and get to know him that way. But miracles themselves don't mean the miracle worker is God. Others will say, well, what about those times it says in the Bible that Jesus knew what someone was thinking? Well, let me try again and answer that question with a question. If you know what someone is thinking, does that mean you're God? How many of you can tell by observing people's facial reaction, comments, muttering, body language, and the like, what they're thinking? Husbands and wives, we get really good at that, or we better be good at it. With one look at your spouse, you know well, who you know well, and empathize with, and know about, and love. One look, you can say, oh, he's upset. 
ooh, she, she, she's tired, with a look. Or in the case, perhaps, in Jesus' life, oh, those Pharisees are trying to trip me up. Being able to tell what someone is thinking, what's on their heart, it doesn't necessarily mean you're God. It may simply mean you're very, very, very good at identifying with people and reading their reaction and response. Or, if supernatural power is in effect and in play for knowing what someone is thinking, that power may be coming from God or the Spirit and not you. Now, while Jesus is indeed fully God, have I affirmed that enough this morning so that no one will take me out of context? While Jesus is indeed fully God, I would die for that truth, brothers and sisters. You've got to give me next week. While Jesus is indeed fully God, given what Paul says, I don't think Jesus went there in living his life as fully human. He refused to take advantage of the fact that he was fully God. And why would he refuse that? Because he wanted so badly to truly be with us all the way in this hard thing called life. This one Emmanuel God really with us. So, Jesus' miracles and the knowing what was on people's hearts and everything he did or did not do in living out his life, with the exception of the transfiguration where his divinity literally blazes out of him for his disciples to see. But in everything else, in my opinion, Jesus was able to do because he was so faithful, so obedient, so close to God the Father. It was God the Father's power through Jesus, the fully human man, who decided not to go there himself, even though he could have. As fully God, he decided not to take advantage of being God. And relentlessly you see Jesus praying to the Father, looking to the Father, asking the Father, why would he have to do that if he was fully God? Just ask himself. Relentlessly going to God to ask permission, to seek guidance, to... Because he was fully human by his choice, he decided not to go there. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? The Bible doesn't record a single miracle of Jesus until after he was filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Do you notice? Not one. Almost as if he needed that anointing to perform miracles. And please hear me, I say needed, not because he wasn't God and could have done it on his own. Needed because he chose not to go there. Needed because he needed the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because of his decision not to go there on his own. Though he could have as fully God. He needed the power of the Holy Spirit because of his own decision not to take advantage of the power that was in him himself as God. Does that make sense? Nobody affirmed it. I know it seems impossible, but remember, Mary, it's not impossible because 
Jesus decided to live his life fully human. Isaiah tells us that Jesus, Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract him to us, to attract us to him. In his appearance, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Luke tells us that Jesus learned like a human being needs to learn. He grew in wisdom. Does God need to grow in wisdom? And so he knew the scriptures well, so well, because he studied hard. Not because as God he wrote them. That's cheating and going there. He decided not to, Paul says. And then, The author of Hebrews includes the remarkable statement that Jesus learned obedience. He learned obedience? Hebrews says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Why not just save himself if he's fully God? The answer is, chose not to go there. So he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, if Jesus is fully God, then why does he need to learn obedience? The only reason I can see is if Jesus, as Paul says, chose to set aside being fully God, using the fact that he was God. Jesus decided to live his life fully human. Now, the really cool part, although that's really cool too and also really cool part the part that can and should change the world the part that should make all the difference for us as followers of Jesus it's two-part answer first because Jesus is fully human we can really truly relate to him in the closest possible way he's one of us all the way He's not God with skin on. He's not fully human in a way that his being fully God takes the edge out of it. As soon as we allow that to happen, either way on the fully God, fully human continuum, you damage the other truth that he's fully both. And so, when Jesus was lonely, he was truly, profoundly lonely and he got tired and he got hungry and he felt pain excruciating physical pain and even the far deeper pains like the pain of not being understood or the pain of betrayal And even those closest to you turning their backs on you. The one called the man of sorrows really knew what it meant to be sad. He got angry. Jesus wrestled with family relationships. 
He experienced all the chaos any one of us has in, in living life as a mortal in a fallen world. He even experienced the pain of death. And you know, the fact of his death really speaks perhaps the loudest in terms of his full humanity since God can't die. He didn't go there. If he had gone there, there's no way he dies. He is fully God, but he willingly said, I'm not going to take advantage of it, even to the point of my immortality. He gave us that. Students come back, back at me on this one sometimes. I mean, Jesus experienced everything I experienced. Well, <laughs> one student once said, Jesus doesn't know what it's like to be married or to have kids. And one time, someone asked me, someone who was the victim of a terrible crime to her person, you can imagine, she once asked me quietly and in tears, Mr. Lanting, how would Jesus possibly know what I'm experiencing right now? And they're tough questions. Kids always ask the best questions. But I think Jesus does know what those things and all things like them are like. What if Jesus, as a person, as a human being, was so perfectly empathetic, so in tune with people, so in love with them that when hard things or terrible things happen to them, it truly was and is as if it happened to him personally. He knows. He's that perfectly empathetic. He feels that pain as real as if it's on him. The Bible says. Jill and I recently watched a Hallmark classic movie, November Christmas. Maybe some of you saw it. And in that movie, you could feel the pain. You could feel the pain of the parents watching their little daughter struggle with cancer. John and Julie, I thought of you the whole time we watched that show. At one point, the mom cries out from the depths of her heart, oh, why couldn't it have been me? Jesus, before he came down, born of a virgin, I picture him coming in to see God the Father with something similar on his empathetic heart. Oh, Father, look at the trouble they're in. Look at the separation. Look at what they're going through. Is there any way that it could be me? And God the Father went, yeah, son, there is. But you're going to have to give it all up. What parent wouldn't for their child? And so much more. <laughs> what creator wouldn't do it for all of his creation and each one of us? And he did. As for marriage and children, while nothing suggests Jesus was married or had children, what if Jesus in his full humanity cared and loved for people, even all creation, so much that he loved them like a bride or like children? Suddenly, Jesus doesn't just have one wife. He has billions, and every one of them is a high-maintenance bride. 
And if he truly had that same kind of love and intimate concern for people, if he considered everyone like his children, let those children come to me, then he knew what it was like to be married and to have kids. Another student once made the comment, well, Jesus doesn't know what it's like to sin. And he was right. He doesn't. Jesus doesn't know what it's like to sin. But let me tell you something. He sure knows what it's like to struggle with temptation. And you know, if we shortchange Jesus' full humanity, then he really wasn't tempted. He knew what it was like to be truly tempted. In the most famous story we have of Jesus' temptations, the devil comes to Jesus in the wilderness when he's tired and hungry and alone, weak in his full humanity. And the devil tempts him, hey, turn that stone into bread and eat it. And the question is, could he have done that? My answer is, yes, or it's not a true temptation. Jesus could have immediately said, you know what, I am hungry. I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to take advantage of the fact that I'm fully God, and I'm going to use it. Stone become bread. But he didn't. He said no to the temptation. So Jesus being fully human is important for us to know because he is one who really does know what it's like to be human and living in a fallen world. And he chose to do it because he loves us. And you know what? That kind of love that kind of love that chose to set aside the use of being fully God, to dive into mortality for real and to deal with the hurt of life for real in a fallen world as a mortal man. I mean, what kind of love does that? What an amazing love that should just drop us to our knees. Second, Discipleship. Remember, Jesus calls us as disciples, and when a Jewish rabbi, when Jesus calls us as his disciples, and when he turns to those disciples and he says to them and through them to us, I want you to go now and make disciples of all the nations, that rabbi is putting, that rabbi is saying, I believe you can be just like me. What a statement. Jesus believes that you can be just like him. Do you believe that you can? One key reason that Jesus came as fully human was to genuinely, for real, show us how we can indeed be just like him, even though we're not God. Since Jesus did it, we can. And he believes we can be just like him. And something in us bristles and says, well, that's him possible. But remember, Mary, it is possible with God because it's Peter walking on the water. He's doing great. He starts to sink. And he looks to the one who knows has the power and can save him. He believes in Jesus. He says, Lord, save me. And Jesus says, Peter, what about your belief? What belief? His belief in Jesus? He just cried out to the Lord, the one who can save me. He's not struggling in his faith his belief in Jesus, what's he struggling with? I think he's struggling as a disciple of Jesus, his belief that he can be just like 
his rabbi, which is what got him out of the boat in the first place. See, we shouldn't go down the road of, well, of course Jesus did what he did because he is God. No, he didn't. He set that part aside, remember? He followed God his Father as a man anointed with the Holy Spirit. Even though he was God, he chose to do it as a human being. Why? To show us how we can do it too with God. To show us we can be just like him. He says we can be just like him. Do you believe it? The power to heal. We can do it with God's help. The power to cast out demons. We can do it with God's help. The power to bless. The power to obey. The power to say no to every temptation, no matter what it is. Just like Jesus did. The power to actually love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our might, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Even the power to eagerly give up our lives for others. We can be just like Jesus, even as Jesus was just like Jesus. Through the power of God the Father dwelling within us through the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus had. Jesus did it that way as a human, and we can too, so help us God. And a first reaction might be, well, that's impossible. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is God. I can't be like him. That's impossible. But Mary, it's not impossible because it's the promise of Christmas. Nothing is impossible with God, even a virgin birth. Even God coming to the world as flesh and blood to save humanity from its sin. Even the incarnation. And even the fellow sons and daughters of God, the followers, the brothers and sisters of Jesus being just like the rabbi. It's possible with God. And it's the promise of Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how often how often do we fall short of the mission because we give up hope in being like your son? Father, have we missed the message of Jesus' full humanity? The message that says, wow, he's actually was a person just like me and he felt these things. He really knows he wants to be that close. He said no to being God for me. And Father, have we missed that in that decision when he comes doing it in his full humanity and setting aside his divinity, have we lost the example that through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit and partnering with you that we can be just like him? Keep us from being discouraged Keep us from the devil's whispers and lies that suggest you can't do this. Even as he suggested to Jesus in Gethsemane that he couldn't do it either. Please, Father, guard our hearts. Encourage us as we look at that baby at Christmas one more time and see the impossible happen. That we would also believe the impossible could happen in us, that indeed with your help we can be just like you and loving you with all our heart, all our soul, all our might, and loving others as ourselves so the world indeed may know that you are God and there is salvation and salvation alone in Jesus, 
your fully God and fully human Son, our brother. Father, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' amazing name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand, please, West Bowles, for the benediction this morning, God's good words from Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, where Paul writes this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit that you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him, by that Spirit, we cry, Abba. Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas, West Bowl. See you tonight at the tree lighting. It'll be a great time. God bless you all.